Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back today to discuss a little bit more in the history of photography, the invention of the first identifiable photographs. Now, we've already done sort of a couple of episodes on this subject. We had a whole episode about the camera obscura, Mm -hmm. uh, the the idea that a closed, darkened chamber with a pinhole aperture will project images from the outside world on on a darkened wall upside down and inverted and how this has been used in, uh, say, the history of art and uh, how it was discovered. But then in the last episode, we started uh, talking about the precursors to modern photography. So we talked about Johann Heinrich Schultz and silver nitrate, uh, his discovery about how silver nitrate darkens when exposed to light. We talked about Tom Wedgwood, the dream boy, and Humphrey Davy and their experiments with what came to be called photograms or shadowgrams also based on silver nitrate. And we talked about uh, Joseph Nicephor Nieps and heliography, which involved uh, like uh, pu- putting like bitumen on a, on a plate and then exposing it to light and then washing off the parts that hadn't hardened. So I guess we should remember where this technology was, uh, where it was left after Tom Wedgwood and Humphrey Davies' shadowgrams. We, we had figured out that you can coat, say, a piece of leather or a piece of glass or something, any kind of surface with silver nitrate-based solution and fix images or silhouettes onto the surface with light. But the problem was they couldn't figure out how to fix this image so that it was durable when exposed to more light. They needed a way of preventing additional exposure to light from corrupting the original image. So I'm really enjoying this exploration into photography, uh, in in part because like there's just so much more to it than I initially realized. It's and, huge. Yeah, and I, I felt like I had like a pretty good grasp of uh, the history of photography and the invention of photography. Um, but when you yeah when you start digging into it and uh, and really stopping to consider this this weird almost alchemical process of early photography. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's so easy to take take it for granted nowadays with our, our instant digital uh, imagery uh, that is just uh, and it's just like magic, and we don't think about it. We've Where, become immune to the magic. Yeah, we, yeah. We've, we've we've become immune to it, and uh, I think it's really helpful to to take it uh, apart and look back at how we made these advancements. Yeah, and uh, of course, remember you make that comparison to alchemy, but Isaac Newton almost explicitly made that comparison. Mm-hmm. You know, remember he talked about uh, that it was a part of nature that that nature loves transmutation, you know, this terminology of transmutation, like the transmutation of lead into gold, which, of course, the alchemists wanted to do but couldn't find a way to do, and ultimately was a fool's errand because they didn't understand things about nuclear chemistry and, you know, why that couldn't happen. But even though he's wrong in his kind of uh, alchemy-based leanings, Isaac Newton does make this comparison in the realm of light. He says that light may well want to be transmuted into bodies by nature. It may want to be transmuted into material changes in substances you can hold in your hand. And, of course, this is exactly the chemistry behind what would become photography, light causing changes in substance. Yeah, and, uh, you know, one of the things about the the invention of photography, too, I think it's a great – it's a great model for invention uh, to consider past inventions we've discussed and future inventions, um, it, particularly when it comes to certain questions. And one of the big questions that we've, we've loved to ask uh, in regards to invention is why now? Why not earlier? Why was any given invention 
Uh, why did it come to fruition at this particular time and not an earlier time? Mm-hmm. And uh, indeed, there have been, there's been some consideration on this regarding uh, Schultz's silver nitrate discoveries and why photography didn't take off in the early 1700s. And granted, we're not talking about a huge lapse here. This isn't one of those situations where a technology comes around and it's forgotten for centuries or millennia. But, uh, but, but it has led many people to wonder, like, you know, why is there this gap? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, when I was uh, looking into this, I found a wonderful Arts and Society, that's a website, um, story titled, Why Wasn't Photography Invented Earlier? Yeah. By Philip McCott. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's uh, uh, M-C-C-O-U-A-T if you want to look uh, look up this paper. Uh, but the, the author points out that this question was pondered in the highly influential history of photography by uh, the Gersheims. Uh, quote, the circumstance that photography was not invented earlier remains the greatest mystery in its history. Um, uh, I don't – I mean that's always a fun question to ask, but I don't know if it's always – as piercing a question as the people asking it think it is mm-hmm. because it, technology always seems obvious looking back, but I don't know. I mean, why wasn't the wheel invented earlier? We talked about this in the wheel episode. We, we don't know the answer. Maybe one answer as given uh, – I think it was the hypothesis of uh, Richard Bullitt in that book we talked about was that the wheel just wasn't really necessary until you had certain very specific types of transportation scenarios. His uh, his hypothesis is that that would be copper mining. This is – you know, the wheel showed up there because it's a scenario where a wheel makes a huge difference compared to, say, a normal – normal pack animal that would have been used for thousands of years before that. But on like stuff to blow your mind, we've also asked questions about basic electrical technologies. Mm-hmm. Why didn't the ancient Romans have friction generators or capacitors? They could have had those. There's nothing stopping them from having these objects. They just never really did it uh, or not that we know of for sure. And so a lot of times it's just hard to come up with a satisfactory explanation. But I think we should we should also question ourselves here and question the assumptions we're making when we ask that question with an, with, with like an accusatory tone. Yeah, and, and uh, McCaught does a great job of, of sort of tackling this on two fronts. So, so first of all, he sort of he, – he, he looks at some of the, the, the counter evidence to this whole um, uh, mystery, right? Mm-hmm. And he points out that Schultz's discoveries were probably not as widespread as some historians may have interpreted uh, and that the man's presentation to the Imperial Academy in Nuremberg went, quote, largely unnoticed and that his work wouldn't uh, see actual publication until after his death. And his work was very like likely difficult to access and not considered of much value at the time. Uh, quote, furthermore, those who actually were familiar with it were more likely to have come across it in popular books on amusing parlor tricks rather than in scientific journals. Yeah, like try to forget photography exists. Mm-hmm. Pretend you just don't know that this is even possible. Somebody demonstrates to you that a bottle holding a slurry of silver nitrate, you can make letters in the side of the bottle with a stencil by exposing those uh, areas to light. And then you shake the bottle and they go away. Do you immediately conclude, aha, I can fix images of the natural world? I'm not so sure that's obvious to people who do not have our photography-addled brains. But to be clear, we're talking about, uh, you know, 100 years or so still. That's a considerable chunk of time. Right. So uh, Schultz's experiments with silver nitrate darkening in a bottle, that was in the 1710s, like 1717. And then we had uh, Tom Wedgwood and Humphrey Davy around the turn of the uh, 1800s. 
Uh, and we're going to get to today Henry Fox Talbot and Louis Daguerre who come up with what's really definitely something that counts as photography around the 1830s toward the end of the 1830s. Now, uh, an- another important uh, fact that McCaw points out here is that, of course, you have to have uh, some other key inv- advancements come along in chemistry to make photography, uh, the ev- further evolution of, a co- of, of photography really possible. Exactly. I mean, because as we're going to see, like Daguerre and Talbot's processes are more chemically complicated than what these earlier people were trying to do. Right. So specifically, you would need the isolation and production of both uh, iodine and bromine. But uh, in addition to all of this, uh, uh, McCaught does a good job, too, of uh, ruminating on the role of hindsight in all of these matters. Mm -hmm. It's easy for us to say, huh, why didn't someone think of that earlier? Like, here are the pieces. Right. Uh, And he points uh, to a particular study on hindsight bias. Um, This one was uh, one by uh, uh, Mandel, uh, patently non-obvious empirical demonstration that the hindsight bias renders patent decisions irrational Mm. uh, from Ohio State Law Journal. Uh, in, two, in, 20, in 2006. Okay, so what did Mandel find here? Well, so the key takeaways from this are that 70% of people who have been told that a solution had actually been found considered that this solution would have been obvious. 20% of people who had not been told that a solution had been found felt that the solution would be obvious. And this held true even when subjects were warned against the dangers of hindsight bias. Okay, so just telling somebody people have already figured out X, even if maybe it's something they didn't already know about, Mm -hmm. makes it seem obvious to them. Exactly. And interestingly enough, I think this... this, this falls in a little bit with the potential dangers of narrative thinking, which we recently discussed on our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that that when we learn of an outcome, uh, such as something from the history of invention, mm-hmm. we incorporate that ending into the story of the events, and therefore the end becomes seemingly inevitable. Oh, this is always a part of narrative. Yeah. Like when you're in the middle of a movie, you're thinking, how's it going to end? But then when you get to the end, you're like, that was obvious. Of course yeah. it had to end that way. Of course they were going to invent photography, right? Yeah. But as McCump points out, uh, you know, some people have, re- have certainly disagreed on the inevitable nature of photography. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, for instance, uh, who in addition to writing science fiction, wrote a lot about science and the history of science. Mm -hmm. And he considered photography to be one of the 16 most unexpected inventions. Oh, no. uh, This has got me thinking, what are the most unexpected inventions we've covered on the show so far? X-rays have got to be one of them, right? That's just out of the blue. Yes, X-rays, no idea. X-rays is definitely on that list, along with uh, nuclear energy, radio, lasers, and carbon dating, uh, and of course, uh, some others. Those are the ones that he highlights uh, in, in covering Clark's work. But uh, he says that one of the key things is that a lot of the the entries on Clark's list are, are inventions that span different disciplines. And again, think to all the things coming together in photography. You have the arts with painting, and uh, you have optics, and then you have this, uh, this chemical uh, aspect of the whole scenario as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, much like uh, carbon dating, that covers so many different disciplines. I mean, so that's going to be like physics and nuclear chemistry and geology and atmospheric science and archaeology. I think those really are also the most exciting kinds of inventions, the ones that are not just a an advance in a clearly defined discipline, mm-hmm. but something that, yeah, draws from many different sources. Absolutely. All right, on that note, we're going to take our first break. But when we come back, uh, we are going to uh, get into the next step in the evolution of photography. We're going to be talking about the daguerreotype. 
All right, we're back. So it is time to meet one of the major characters in the history of photography, maybe the most important character, Mm -hmm. Louis Daguerre. So the last episode we did ended with a discussion of uh, Joseph Nicephor Niepce and his heliography method, which involved using various kinds of resin, like originally bitumen and lavender oil, that would harden when exposed to light. And then the unhardened resin could be washed away. And this would allow hardened patterns of resin to form the basis of a heliograph inside a camera box. And you could probably argue that this did in some sense constitute photography as we understand it, but the exposures took a really long time. You might have to expose them for hours or even days, and the resin was just not the best medium for recording images. But this process becomes important mainly because of the way that Niepce ended up partnering with this guy named Louis Daguerre. And they worked together for several years, I think beginning in 1829. Right, and then uh, Niepce died in 1833 uh, at the age of 68. Uh, So really, a lot of what we're talking about today is like, where did it go from there? Like Niepce passes his discoveries off to uh, Daguerre, and then and then what comes of that? Uh, but, is, but, is it callous of me that I'm just imagining when, when Niepce died, he made a sound, and that sound was Niepce? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe I mean, that's not even funny. I don't know why <laughs> my brain goes to there. Um, but uh, but it's still, I, it is important to note that they did work together for, for several years there. So it, uh-huh. it wasn't just like, uh, you know, he met and met this guy and then he died and then the new guy took off with it. Like they, they were working together uh, on this, but they they didn't find a solution during Nip's life. Right. So uh, let's let's discuss Daguerre a little bit. So the, his, his name was Louis-Jacques Mondet Daguerre, and he was born in 1787, and he was, he was primarily, you could say, an artist of various kinds. He was sort of an artist entrepreneur. He was a painter. What else did he do? Oh, he was a printmaker, and uh, prior to the, the, all this photography jazz, his biggest success came through the medium of diorama. Now, this is an interesting thing. This is going to be a little bit different than what you probably think of when you think diorama. Yeah, because what I think of is I think of going to a museum and seeing a lot of cool dioramas or increasingly mm. working on uh, elementary school dioramas yep. with my son. You know, yeah. let's glue some dinosaurs in there. Let, let's get some uh, some cardboard plants in the back of that shoebox and uh, let's let's get an A on this puppy. It's always a shoebox. You cut one wall out mm-hmm. you, or you just turn it on its side, I guess, and remove the lid. Oh, I was doing it all wrong. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but yeah, you put some action figures in there, you do some coloring. But no, th- this is a little bit different, though it's a similar kind of concept. It is creating a static image or scene that is a spectacle that simulates realism and draws attention. So uh, the diorama, which we'll explain in a minute, began around 1821. But before this, Daguerre had training as an artist and a painter. And one of the things that Daguerre worked on was the the panorama, which was a type of public spectacle in the early 1800s, I think going back to Good good bit before then, mm-hmm. involving 360-degree paintings inside an enclosed space. So there'd be like a cylinder-shaped room. You go and sit inside, and then it, you could simulate a whole environment by viewing this 360-degree painting from the inside with attempts to capture as much realism as possible. Like they would even – they had all these methods for recreating perspective accurately. And so you could be in Paris maybe, but – 
go inside a room that looked like the city of Edinburgh and, hmm. and you, you know, look around and it would be like being there. For any of our Atlanta-based listeners uh-huh. or anyone who's been to Atlanta. I know where you're going with this. <laughs> you're probably thinking of Cyclorama. Uh-huh. Uh, which, which is not about motorcycles. No. Uh, it, it sounds – it potentially sounds more ex- exciting than it is was – uh, and, I, and I say that because I'm, I'm not really sure about its current status. It was located in its own building next to Zoo Atlanta, mm-hmm. and it is either in the process of of being moved or has moved to a new location. Uh, so whenever you listen to this episode, look it up and uh, and see if you can find out where it is. But the the idea of Cyclorama was that it was uh, if you visited it, uh, you know, on a school trip or, or what have you, mm-hmm. it was this Civil War painting. That was uh, that was uh, uh, you know that went all the way around the walls of this circular room, mm-hmm. and they also had some like three D elements uh, coming out in front of it to sort of give it this sense of depth. And then you would also be seated in this uh, this kind of stadium seating that would uh, that would re- revolve so that you could see all of the painting while music played and so forth. Yeah, uh, so it would try to simulate being in a place, right? It was mm-hmm. it was going for realism in a way, and. And this is pretty much the same principle as the kind of panoramas that, uh, that that Daguerre worked on as a painter. But in the early 1820s, Daguerre went into this new type of project as, a, as an artist and a proprietor um, that was known as the diorama. And the diorama was not exactly like the panorama. It wasn't a, a you know, circular thing that, right. that went all around you. But it was a, a painted image spectacle that people looked at and the, what they were really trying to do was to create a startling level of realism in large-scale painting. Yeah, like what – in a way, he, he was really trying to push beyond the, the, the medium. Yeah. Uh, to say like, OK, what could I do beyond just presenting a painting of, say, a landscape? Right. What could we do to, say, simulate weather? Could we change the lighting on it? Um, and then ultimately, you know, this involved the presentation of two-sided works of art with dramatic lighting to change, uh, you know, what you were seeing. Um, you know, it's 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 difficult even looking at images and even videos of this. It's, uh, it, it's often uh, problematic to try and imagine exactly what it what it consisted of. But mm-hmm. um, I, I imagine it is having similarities to the older traditions of shadow puppetry, which of course depended on um, on, on, on performing something with a screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also certain dramatic scroll presentation performance art forms that you find in various cultures uh, where you are you are taking a 2D image and you are displaying it dramatically. Uh, but the, the key here in the diorama was the, the change, changing the lighting to bring to life one of the two versions of the art, such as, say, a dormant volcano on one side of the image and an erupting one on the other, or, sim- or simply casting painted storm uh, clouds with lightning to give them the sense of, uh, you know, to give, the, to, to give the sense that it's alive with actual storm activity. Exactly, yeah, it's that kind of thing. And so, uh, in the last episode, I mentioned this book I've been reading called Capturing the Light by Roger Watson and Helen Rappaport about the invention of of photography. And it quotes some contemporaneous sources describing the diorama uh, that I I thought were kind of helpful in establishing how powerful this medium was to people. So there was a critic of the Paris Monthly Review who was writing about one of Daguerre's early dioramas, which was a painting that was supposed to represent the inside of Canterbury Cathedral, Okay. So the critic writes this. 
Anyone who views the interior of Canterbury Cathedral from the gallery of the diorama can with difficulty persuade himself that he is not looking up its almost interminable aisle from the actual organ loft. And again, when the scene is changed and we gaze upon the Valley of Sarnen, we are electrified by a representation so miraculous in execution. We mark so plainly before us the mountains, lake, and buildings which some of us have seen before while leaning from our rustic balconies that the mind loses itself in a vision of wonder and delight. Uh, and then also uh, they write in their book that the dean of Canterbury, so who, you know, from the actual cathedral, came, uh, they say, quote, came specifically to view the diorama of his cathedral and, quote, could scarcely believe at the sight of the cathedral that he was not in his own chapel. There are reports of people so convinced by the realism of these scenes depicted in the dioramas like the cathedral that they would approach the proscenium inside the theater and try to walk into the scenes like oh, wow. thinking they were real. Which reminds me of those stories of uh, people getting freaked out in, in early movies when somebody would say point a gun at the camera oh, or there would yeah. be a train rushing toward the camera. Uh, but yeah, so the, the fascinated and enthralled reactions to the diorama seem to say something interesting about the demand for visual media and realism in visual media. Like I'm trying to imagine how people coming in off the streets to pay essentially to go to a movie but not a movie, just one huge painting with dynamic lighting effects to simulate stuff like lightning or sunshine or running water would – you know, would just be so enraptured by this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess we go into museums to look at art. Uh, usually you have an idea that this is some kind of edifying experience that, you know, you learn something about history and you're going to look at a lot of different artworks. I'm very interested in the idea that people would go in to pay to sit in a theater and just like look at one gi gigantic painting or I think they might change them out so you might look at two in, in one sitting or something. Uh, with these lighting effects, and and sometimes I think they had sound effects too, and you'd be like, "This is this is great afternoon." Oh yeah, I mean, I can. On one hand, I think back to visiting the cyclorama, and and the cyclorama is a lot more interesting than I, than it may have sounded. You know, mm -hmm. there's a cool history to it and all. Uh, uh, you know, where the painting came from, what kind of you know the varying conditions it was in. Uh, over the course of its history, but still, it's it's not as exciting as a movie, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, on one hand, I want to bring that experience into trying to imagine this, but then also, I think to some of the more engaging, large works of art that I've appreciated over the years, uh, be it like a, an Irving Norman, um, uh, you know, a large scale a triptych, or uh, another example would be uh, I forget the, the the year of its creation, but the the, the huge medicine Buddha that is um, displayed at the Met in hmm. New York City. Uh, like those are both large-scale pieces that you can just spend a lot of time looking at, looking at the details, walking around, you know, sort of adjusting the lighting insofar as you can do that by moving your perspective. Yeah. So with based on those experiences, yeah, I can imagine how the diorama experience could have taken hold, especially uh, in this time before these other visual medium mediums were really available. Yeah, I think that's right. And and you mentioned uh, adjusting the lighting just by moving around to look mm -hmm. at it from different angles. One thing that I think is very interesting about this is that 
Uh, apparently, a skill Daguerre specifically brought to this project was his skill with lighting. Now, remember, this is before electric spotlights and stuff. So it's it's written that Daguerre had to basically use sunlight. Like oh, he would wow. have the mechanical operation of windows and shutters and skylights to direct light onto the image in certain ways. And sometimes they did employ sound effects too. So it wasn't just that. But like it's amazing trying to think what would you do if you were trying to like light a play but you had to use sunlight. Yeah. It, it also brings to mind just what goes into displaying art in a museum, you know, mm-hmm. just all the, the, the lighting and placement uh, uh, considerations that have to be uh, in effect just to be able to not even think about the physical location, to be able to focus on the art itself. Yeah. So Daguerre finds success with the diorama. This does eventually prove to be a successful money-making operation. And uh, But Daguerre is not satisfied. He doesn't want to stop there. He remains interested in this thing of increasing realism in art. And so you can pretty easily see how this might set someone on the road toward developing photography. Yeah, I mean, his interest lined up perfectly, again, kind yeah. of in, in hindsight. Right. But he was a painter. He was a camera obscura enthusiast. Yes. An inventor and someone who was eager to experiment with new technologies. Right. He, he was on this hunt for ever-increasing realism in art. He was sort of obsessed with capturing realism in images, but he didn't have the tools to get as much realism as he wanted. And he became interested in discovering what those tools might be, even though he didn't really have any scientific training. Like, Daguerre was not a scientist. He was an artist. And this brings another thing to mind, and, and perhaps uh, you can comment on this from uh, from the book you were reading, but it also seems that Daguerre had either personal charisma or just very good social yes. networking skills because his, his biography, you know, you can pinpoint all the various important connections he's making, uh, be it with... Um, uh, you know, a, a key inventor like uh, like Neeps, or various important and influential members um, of the uh, of the French academies. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, we I don't think we were really going to get into this in the episode, but like his friendship with Charles Chevalier ended up proving very important. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he 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 seemed to make friends well. Like people liked him. He was charismatic. He was he was a remarkable person. He did not seem to have just a a rogues list of enemies that he made in Paris. <laughs> not like uh, Adolf Sax, right. the inventor of the saxophone, who instantly got into trouble. But no, you're exactly right in the point you make there. Yeah, like Daguerre had strengths he was bringing to this invention process that were not necessarily in strengths in, say, uh, empirical research or the sciences. They were all kinds of other strengths. They were strengths with knowledge of the arts, with hands-on experience and how people relate uh, relate to media and imagery mm-hmm. and in, in the arts and in the dioramas and the panoramas. Uh, it was networking and social skills. He had a lot of this going on. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I'm reminded of Jim Henson. You know, when you when you look at the at, at the skills he brought to the table, like you know, not only was he uh, was he artistic, uh, but he was also uh, you know seemed to have have uh, you know a lot of personal charisma. Was great at working with people, had a good business mindset. So mm-hmm. you had all of these skills helping to to, to leverage uh, what they could achieve in life. Yeah, and so Daguerre, of course, was also familiar with optical aids in art, like the camera obscura. I think you mentioned that, and like others before him, he became 
sort of obsessed with trying to fix the images that were projected in a camera obscura by some chemical means. And in their book, Watson and Rappaport make an interesting argument. They say the following, quote, Had he known more of the complexities of chemistry, he might have been daunted. Instead, it was precisely his scientific naivete that allowed him to tackle the challenges that lay lay ahead, unaware of the minefield of potential failure that lay before him. Oh, wow. Now, I don't know if they're right about that, but that's a very interesting read on the story, that it's essentially the fact that he doesn't know what he's doing that, that gives him the energy to do it. Like, no one had properly convinced him that this was an astounding task he was was setting out to conquer. Right. Yeah, like nobody had – he was not convinced that he could not do it. Right. Again, I don't know if that's right, but it's very interesting. I I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, And so Daguerre seems to have begun experimenting with with attempts to invent photography around 1824 or so, a few years after his first success with the diorama. And his work habits were reportedly devoted, bordering on manic. Like his friends said that he would stay in his laboratory studio for days at a time, that he would miss meals. Sometimes he'd work without sleeping. His wife became very concerned. Concerned about him. There's one story that we only have from many years after the fact, so it's somewhat questionable whether it's true. But this comes from a, a French uh, chemist named Jean Baptiste André Dumas, and Watson and Rappaport relay this story in their book. They say that one day in 1827, Dumas reports that uh, after he had been giving a lecture at the Sorbonne in Paris. Um, he was approached by a woman, and uh, here's how it goes: "Quote." a woman who seemed to be in a very worried state of mind. Monsieur Dumas, she said, I have to ask you a question of vital importance to myself. I am the wife of Daguerre, the painter. He has for some time been possessed by the idea that he can fix the images of a camera. He is always at the thought. He cannot sleep at night for it. I am afraid he is out of his mind. Do you, as a man of science, think it can be done, or is he mad? In the present state of our knowledge, replied Dumas, it cannot be done, but I cannot say it will always remain impossible, nor set the man down as mad who seeks to do it. (laughs) Which I'm sure to her was like the worst possible kind of answer, right? Because it's like, so she couldn't be told like, yes, you need to make him stop, Mm -hmm. uh, but also couldn't be told that, yeah, oh, I think he could do that. It's like, (laughs) no, it's probably impossible, but he, he should keep trying. But it kind of plays into this idea of, you know, the non-scientist just plowing obliviously into the cutting edge of chemistry. There's something extremely charming and, and attractive about that. I agree. I mean, especially, again, with hindsight, knowing that he he eventually succeeds. Yeah, I guess most people who tried to do this probably would not succeed. But mm-hmm. Daguerre, I mean, he seemed – he was dedicated to his work. Even if he wasn't scientifically trained, he was clearly very clever. You know, he picked up on things. He was good, you know, working, working – solving problems with his hands. And so uh, Daguerre's efforts failed for years until, through a mutual friend, he came into contact with – the, the man we were talking about in the last episode and who we've mentioned several times now, Joseph Nisiphorniepz, the scientist who had invented the crude bitumen-based method of heliography in the, in the 1820s. And I think here we can sort of mark a turning point for Daguerre. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's made a connection with someone with, uh, with expertise 
in yeah. the matter, and he can he can uh, combine that with his own experimentation. And uh, you know, they, they the two only worked together again for like four years before Niepce uh, passed away. That was eighteen thirty three, and they were unable to come up with with anything that that really worked that really solved the problem. But it sort of, I think this set Daguerre on on a productive road, right? So Daguerre continued work here on this, uh-huh. uh, and apparently by by eighteen thirty eight. He had a process uh, worked out that was pretty solid. And by 1839, uh, he was actually ready to share it around, to show yeah. it to people, potential investors. It made his debut. Right. Um, and, and he showed it to various French luminaries and finally to the French Academies of Science and Art. Yes. And this process of taking a photograph that he revealed in 1839, this is what became known as the de- the daguerreotype. Right. And – Again, like all these other photographic processes we've been talking about, it sounds like nothing short of an alchemical act of wonder. Yeah. Uh, here's how it's described by Malcolm Daniel uh, from the Department of Photographs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yeah, he's got several good essays that you can easily find online oh, yes. about the history of photography. Quote, the process revealed on that day seemed magical. Each daguerreotype is a remarkably detailed, one-of-a-kind photographic image on a highly polished silver-plated sheet of copper, sensitized with iodine vapors, exposed in a large box camera, developed in mercury fumes, and stabilized or fixed with salt water or hypo, sodium theosulfate. Right. So uh, so Daguerre picked up on the work that others had done with silver-based compounds. Remember from the last episode, uh, Tom Wedgwood's shadowgrams or photograms were made by painting a surface with silver nitrate before exposure. Uh, and then the areas that were exposed to light would darken. But eventually the whole thing, of course, in Wedgwood's photo- photograms would darken all over when they were exposed to more bright light. So they, could, they couldn't fix the image. It wouldn't stay there without continuing to expose and degrade. And Daguerre's method solved that problem. So to explain a little more fully, so his method involved, first you would create a light-sensitive silver compound by, uh, you'd start with a plate, like a copper plate that had a silver treatment, a silver coating on one side. And this would be the surface on which the image was projected, okay, on the silver surface. Then you take the silver-coated surface and you would expose it to iodine vapors. And these iodine vapors would react with the silver to produce silver iodide. A silver iodide is also highly photosensitive. And bits of it that are exposed to light quickly darken as they break down into particles of metallic silver. Uh, so once the plate was made sensitive to light by turning its surface to this uh, to contain the silver iodide, uh, of course, during this whole process, it needs to be kept dark, Right. It would then be exposed to light on the back wall of a camera obscura, right? So you'd use the camera obscura process, but instead of just projecting on the wall, you'd project on this plate that it, that was now covered in silver iodide. And then, of course, the silver iodide would react with the light in proportion to how much light there was on every little bit of the surface, which would make a copy of the image. Now, originally, there was still a problem here in that, like Niepce's process, this really required extremely long exposure times which is not practical if you want to capture anything that's moving or living or, you know, or dynamic in any way. But Daguerre got around this by employing the concept of chemically, quote, developing 
the photograph, kind of like you would do when you develop photos today, when you go into a dark room, right? You put a photo into the developing liquid and originally there's something on it that's invisible to you. You can't even see it, but the developing liquid brings out the image. And this meant a brief exposure to a light-based image, maybe just a few minutes, could be developed by exposing the plate to mercury fumes, making the reaction more dramatic and bringing out the contrast in the image between the light and dark area is on the plate. And then finally, the process would fix the image so that further exposure to light wouldn't darken any more of the silver iodide. Uh, and the way they did that is they would wash the plate off with hot salt water, which would remove whatever silver iodide remained and then give you a stable, fixed image on your reflective silver plate. So Daguerre revealed the, the methods, but he retained a patent on the equipment and he received a lifetime pension in exchange from the academies. Yeah, which that's a clever move. Yeah. Know? So you give him a pension so he doesn't need to keep making money off of like enforcing a license on the process, mm-hmm. right? So other people can use the daguerreotype process. And this process would reign supreme for like 20 years. Oh, I um, mean, because he, he was like, yeah, you can use it. Yeah. Uh, so the, another great thing about uh, the history of photography is that, uh, as with last episode, uh, some of the images, uh, the, the key important historical images, are still available today. And yeah. we can look at them. We can – they take us back to the earliest days of a photographic record and the earliest days of the, uh, of the development of this technology. Uh-huh. The uh, earliest, I think, reliably dated daguerreotype comes from 1837. And uh, it's, uh, it's like a lot of the, these, uh, these images that he tested. Uh, it has like some plaster casts in it, still life. Uh, and he, he liked to use plaster casts apparently because they were, they were very reflective because they're white and uh, they don't move, uh, that being key, because you're talking an exposure time of like 10 to 12 minutes here. You're right. And in 1838, he made the first reliably dated photograph of a human being. Hmm. And this, this is a famous image. And this image is probably going to be the, the lead image for this episode uh, on our landing page at inventionpod.com. It was an 8 a.m. photograph of the busy uh, Boulevard du Temple. Is that, does that sound French enough? I'm not I sure. guess. I mean, I'm not French either. <laughs> du Temple, du Temple. Spell like temple. Yeah. So uh, it, it's a... Uh, it's a city streetscape, uh, but then if you look to the like lower left-hand corner, mm. you can clearly see uh, a shoe shiner and their customer. They're visible, and, uh, and and these are the first two human beings photographed. And it is it's haunting because you look at them and it's almost like they're the first humans, right? Yeah, like you're gazing back in time well, to see Adam and Eve, except instead of Adam and Eve, it's. Uh, it's just the, this guy getting his shoe shined. Yeah, but there's so there are several things that make the image fascinating and haunting. One is that uh, they're the only two. It's this big scene of a street. You know, it seems like you should be able to see lots of people, and maybe there are more hidden somewhere in the background. But since they're closer to the camera, it seems like they're the only two people in the image on this otherwise deserted street, which is a little creepy to begin with. Right, because it, it looks like uh, what uh, twenty eight days later or something. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, but this was eight a.m. Godspeed, you black emperor is yeah. playing in the background. <laughs> but this was eight a.m. on a busy uh, French street. Uh-huh. So in actuality. Uh, there are 
people moving all over the place. But since the exposure time was so long, these were apparently the only two individuals who were not moving. And therefore, they're the only ones we see. There's all this like invisible uh, motion, invisible activity that's just lost to us. And so when you think about that, the image is even crazier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some other figures. It's hard to pick out exactly what's – there are some other figures that could be humans in here. I'm not positive. But another thing about them is that they're – like the buildings are sharper in the image than the people are. The people Mm -hmm. are kind of like phantoms. They're like shadow people in the image probably because they were moving a little bit. Right. Anyway, it's it's a remarkable image. Uh, You've probably seen it before, but if you haven't, uh, check it out. Like I said, I'm going to make sure that it's on the landing page for this episode at inventionpod.com. I mean, all of the earliest photos make me feel a little creepy. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're gazing back in time, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess you always are when you look at a photo, but especially in this case. (laughs) Because you're you're getting closer to that – it's almost like reaching the ends of the earth, right? The ends of the photographic record. And granted – people look like people before that as well. Right. Uh, in the same way that it's it's kind of strange when you're like, oh, the first color pictures, you know, as if the world was black and white before these images came, came around. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for us who are used to photography to appreciate how bizarre and mystical and earth-shaking this technology was. I, I found an article that Edgar Allan Poe wrote ah. about this invention. Uh, he wrote about the daguerreotype in 1840 in a Philadelphia publication called Alexander's Weekly Messenger. Did you come across this, Robert? Uh, I did not, but I'm not surprised because Poe, as we recently discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know, mm-hmm. not only a writer of uh, of these uh, macabre tales, uh, but also wrote uh, about science. Yeah. Number one, he says, quote, the instrument itself must undoubtedly be regarded as the most important and perhaps the most extraordinary triumph of modern science. So he's already going all in. Yeah. Um, but then he, he goes uh, into more depth about why this is. Quote, all language must fall short of conveying any just idea of the truth. And this will not appear so wonderful when we reflect that the source of vision itself has been, in this instance, the designer. Perhaps if we imagine the distinctness with which an image is reflected in a positively perfect mirror, we come as near the reality as by any other means. For, in truth, the daguerreotyped plate is infinitely, we use the term advisedly, is infinitely more accurate in its representation than any painting by human hands. If we examine a work of ordinary art by means of a powerful microscope, all traces of resemblance to nature will disappear. But the closest scrutiny of the photogenic drawing discloses only a more absolute truth, a more perfect identity of aspect with the thing represented. The variations of shade and the gradations of both linear and aerial perspective are those of truth itself in the supremeness of its perfection. So to come back to Daguerre, uh, you know, his, again, his background was was heavily artistic, but he also realized the scientific possibilities. Right. You know, you know in part, I imagine, by talking to various uh, French luminaries who had interest in, in the sciences. But he ended up wowing people with photos uh, not only of, you know, 
uh, bits of sculpture and, and uh, street scenes, but also photos of fossils. A dead spider uh, really uh, excited uh, some folks, as did uh, a daguerreotype of the moon. That's right. And that, that combination of interests in the arts and the sciences came together, I think, when it was first uh, presented because the official debut of the daguerreotype process was in 1839, uh, one of the events here was on August 19th, 1839, when Daguerre gave an explanation of the process before a joint session of the French Academy of Sciences and the Academy of Fine Arts. Um, But of course, we should point out that the daguerreotype does have limitations, even though the images are in many ways still quite striking today. One of the limitations is that um, it's not making a negative, it's making a positive image on a highly reflective silver surface, which meant that the image could only be viewed from certain angles and ideally like needed to be viewed when reflecting a dark surface in front of it. If you were to make a daguerreotype reflect a light surface, the daguerreotype kind of looks like a negative of itself. Another problem, of course, is that you're you know dealing with metal plates, right, which are ultimately not going to be as... Uh, convenient for people as, say, like printing on some kind of paper? Oh, yeah. Each each daguerreotype, it's important to note, is a a uh, one-of-a-kind production. Mm -hmm. So if you were to go to get a daguerreotype taken of something, there wasn't a question of how many copies you would need. And and uh, do you want a wallet size well, with that? No. you could make a copy of a daguerreotype. And the way you do it is you take a daguerreotype of the daguerreotype. Well, yes. <laughs> but but uh, but as you, as you can imagine, like that was not a, a tremendously convenient process. Right. Uh, not as convenient as just getting like a photo negative that you, right. can, that you can copy out multiple times. So I have a question I've been wondering about, which is obviously Daguerre was very interested in the idea of realism in art, improving realism in art. He'd done it with the the panorama, the diorama, and then with ultimately the daguerreotype. Is photography necessarily in line with Daguerre's quest? I mean, first of all, it seems like the answer is obviously yes, and I think it probably did fall in line with Daguerre's quest. Well, and also but, when you consider the, uh, you know, what, what were the ideal aspects of artistic pursuit at the time, which yes. we touched on in the last episode. Yeah, exactly. But it also does make me ask the question, well, what actually is realism? Because we've already discussed the ways that any fixed 2D representation of the world, however automatic and objective, like made by a camera instead of by a human hand, is not exactly the same as what the physical world really is, which is 3D and actually 4D because it's always changing over time. What if the photograph actually helped make art more realistic in the sense of a photograph, like more like the image of a photograph. Are there types of scenes in reality that might be more realistically conveyed by less objective fixed medium like painting, at least until like motion pictures come along? Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, say, Impressionism, for instance. Um, You know, there's a it's certainly you get you get closer to the image you see the um uh, it falls apart in the same way that uh, uh, that earlier description was talking about you know mm-hmm. how uh, from Edgar Allan Poe uh, but at the same time when you think about how we actually view reality about how our minds process uh this uh, the sense data and kind of stitch it together and form something concrete out of things that are at times vaguely perceived uh, it, it makes me think that well, when I'm looking at a Monet, uh, perhaps like that is more in line with 
how my brain is processing reality as opposed to the uh, you know the, the the objectivity of a, of a pure photograph. Yeah, I agree. I mean, certainly a photograph is going to be more objective or realistic in a certain sense in that like it's directly sampling the light rays that are actually there and would be hitting your eye in that instant moment mm-hmm. when you were looking at a thing. And I guess human painting is never going to capture that level of objectivity. But there there are ways in which I wonder if – especially in scenes that are moving, that uh, that painting suggests things to the mind that are more, uh, more accurately suggestive of what memories or impressions, say, yeah. uh, of a scene are like than a photo is. Yeah. And, uh, and again, it, it, it is hard to really wrap our, hand, our heads around all of that because I do think we are so influenced by photographs mm-hmm. and we think of our memories as photographs or as motion pictures uh, when they're, they're really not quite uh, uh, the same at all. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should take another break and then when we come back, we will discuss a rival of Daguerre's, Henry Fox Talbot. All right, so we're, we're back, and we're leaving France, we're entering England, and we're dealing with the other major individual uh, from this time period in the birth of photography. Right, so around the same time Daguerre was experimenting with ways to capture the light, and of course, remember, we, we didn't mention again, but... Uh, in one of the earlier episodes, we mentioned that Daguerre wrote this letter to a friend of his, you know, when he had perfected the process, where he said, I have captured the light and arrested its flight. The sun itself shall draw my pictures. <laughs> Seems fitting for the kind of guy Daguerre was, kind of a grandiose artist, right? Yeah. He's he's making uh, – he's sort of like, I've become a god. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, around the same time that Daguerre was doing these experiments, an Englishman named Henry Fox Talbot, who lived 1800 to 1877, had independently been working on the invention of photography. And uh, according to several people who tell this story, he, he was sort of inspired by a simple limitation, which is that he couldn't really draw. Hmm. That's going to hold you back, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So unlike Daguerre, who was a natural artist but was not really trained as a scientist, Henry Talbot was sort of a natural scientist. Like he grew up shy, intelligent, inquisitive. Uh, he was a boy of the English aristocracy. So he had, you know, uh, he had leisure and means to do experiments. Got and, to be kind of the, the gentleman scientist of the day. Right. Yeah. And so he had leisure and means to do experiments and he was known for doing lots of them. He Like he had a reputation for doing chemistry experiments in his house that caused explosions, much to the <laughs> amusement of his mother, uh, and I think to the worry of at least uh, people who they were trying to get insurance policies from. But he grew up with an interest in mathematics and the natural sciences, including botany and astronomy as well as chemistry. But he was, you know, one of those people, he had lots of interests. He was interested in ancient Egypt, in, the, you know, sculpture and the fine arts and all that. Uh, he went on to become a graduate of Trinity College, Cambridge, and eventually he was a liberal MP in the House of Commons. Now, remember in the last episode, we had a section where we talked about the many things that photography fundamentally changed when it was invented. And one thing, of course, was realism in art. But another thing was accuracy in science. If you have an interest in botany, like Henry Fox Talbot did, and you want to make observations about a species of plant, like documenting the vascular structure of the leaves of a plant or describing the gonads of a flowering plant – You today can take a picture, but before that, before you could take a picture, you needed to be able to draw what you were making observations about. 
And so there's a story told in uh, another one of these essays by the photo historian Malcolm Daniel about when Henry Fox Talbot was on his honeymoon in Italy in 1833. He was trying to sketch a picture of a lake called Lake Como. And uh, he, he, of course, did not have Daguerre's natural talent for drawing, but he did have the aid of an optical device. In this case, it was not a camera obscura, though he had used those before, but it was a camera lucida, a camera lucida, Mm. which is Latin for uh, a bright room or a well-lit room. And this was sort of like – I was trying to think of a good way to describe it. It's almost kind of like an augmented reality device. It was a refraction lens that you could position above a piece of paper – or other surface that you wanted to draw on, and then the lens would capture the image that you aimed it at and then refract it about 90 degrees so you could look through the lens down at the paper you're drawing on and see a version of the object or image in front of you superimposed onto this blank canvas. And then, of course, this could aid you in tracing or reproducing. But unfortunately, Talbot discovered that even with the aid of a camera lucida, he was unable to reproduce images of the natural world accurately in a way that satisfied him. Uh, And just as a side note, this is funny. I'm I'm picturing this image of him on his honeymoon and he's like got a camera lucida and he's trying to draw and it reminds me of like (laughs) Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold, you know, another like 19th century Englishman being insufferable and self-serious on his honeymoon. (laughs) These are the very guys that would just be uh, on their their phone the whole time if uh, such technology hadn't had uh, existed (laughs) during their honeymoons. Right, yeah. What are you doing, honey? Oh, ignorant armies are clashing by night. (laughs) So Talbot was trying to use technology to make up for his um, his lack in artistic skill. Yeah, and he was unsatisfied with what he could do, even with the aid of a camera lucida or a camera obscura. But he wondered, would it be possible to capture the kind of image projected in a camera obscura? And he, he wrote, uh, quote, how charming it would be if it were possible to cause these natural images to imprint themselves durably and remain fixed upon the paper. So he's got the bug too, right? The, the photography inspiration germ has implanted itself in young Henry Fox Talbot's brain. And this was around 1833 to 1834. So this was before Daguerre had developed and refined his process in France. And Talbot set about conducting experiments to discover a method of capturing the image, originally working off the same types of chemicals we've talked about several times already, photosensitive silver compounds like silver nitrate, silver chloride, and eventually silver iodide like Daguerre's method uses. Now, remember, Daguerre was using metal plates, like copper plates treated with a silver coating that would be the reactive surface. But Talbot was going for, I guess, a a less durable method. So he was exposing the image on treated paper. So while daguerreotypes produce superior quality images, again, each one was one of a kind. Talbot's method, though, could produce an unlimited number of prints from a single negative. Yeah, so unlike the daguerreotype method, which produced a positive image, the, the Talbot method was, would produce a photo negative like we're used to seeing come out mm-hmm. of a camera today. And this would be on a like a piece of paper treated with some kind of silver-based solution. Unfortunately for Talbot, he worked on uh, most of this privately for years. 
And even though he had already discovered a lot of the principles of photography in the mid-1830s, Daguerre beat him to announcing and publicly demonstrating the process. And Daguerre's photos just looked better. Uh, because of differences in materials and methods, they were more durable and more impressive to look at generally than Talbot's. And again, it also just had a greater level of detail. That's right. Now, one of Talbot's important contributions to the process of photography was actually suggested to him by his friend John Herschel, who was the son of the astronomer William Herschel, who discovered the planet Uranus. Huh. Uh, now, John Herschel – remember, uh, sorry, the, the daguerreotype method, uh, it used hot salt water originally or earlier on to fix the image on the plate by washing off any remaining sodium iodide. And this would stop the image from continuing to react when exposed to light over time. It would fix the image so it stayed like it was. And this fi fixing method was only, sort of only partially effective. Herschel suggested instead of just washing with hot salt water, using hyposulfite of soda instead, which was a much more useful fixer than regular salt. So that's an important chemical insight. But uh, in the early years, unfortunately for Talbot, his process was not anywhere near as close to, uh, to a success as Daguerre's. It was the age of the daguerreotype after this. And I guess we'll explore more about the age of the daguerreotype in the next episode. But Daguerre's process was just much more popular for several reasons. Number one, I think because Daguerre's images were uh, more durable and they were clear, you know, they were sharp and clear and they looked really good, whereas uh, whereas Talbot's images were more kind of like hazy and ephemeral. And also Talbot tried to patent the process and make money off of it, whereas Daguerre, you know, I think Daguerre, he patented his equipment. The equipment was patented, yes. But not the, but not the, process. the process. So any, anybody shared, could yeah. go out and do it. Exactly. But this bring this episode brings us really to, to the birth of photography. The daguerreotype uh, age. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the next episode of, of the show, we're going to continue with photography. And I think the next episode's really kind of be kind of a bridge between photography and, uh, the, and the moving image and the motion picture uh, because that's also part of our, our ongoing trajectory on the show. Uh -huh. uh, but in the next episode, we'll get into, into some of the advancements that also took the uh, the, pho the, uh, the photograph uh, out of the hands of the elite and made it more of, of, of a technology that could be uh, utilized by uh, more or less everyday people. And we'll get in, in to just continually discuss just how it changed the world and how difficult it is for us to really, really grasp the idea of a pre-photographic world. Exactly. I'm excited for next time. In the meantime, if you want to check out uh, more episodes of Invention, if you want to see uh, that, that image that I was discussing earlier, and maybe I'll throw a secondary image on there as well, uh, you can find the landing page for this episode at inventionpod.com. Um, if, also, if you want to support the show, which, of course, we, we, we encourage you to do, the best thing you can do is make sure that you uh, rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so, and make sure you have subscribed to Invention. Huge thanks to our buddy Scott Benjamin for research assistance and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can contact us at our email address, which is contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.